Up next, an Encore 2013 In Conversation interview with Alan Shartok and Dr. David Nassau, author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. It's next. Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Joining us today is author and professor David Nassau. David Nassau is the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Professor Nassau received his Ph.D. from Columbia University. His publications include Andrew Carnegie, which was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and was awarded the 2007 New York Historical Society Prize in American History. The Chief the Life of William Randolph Hearst, which was awarded the Bancroft Prize for History and the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for Nonfiction, Going Out, The Rise and Fall of Public Amusements, Children of the City at Work and at School, School to Order, A Social History of Public Schooling, and in November 2012, David Nassau published The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy, which was named one of the 10 best books of 2012 by the New York Times. It was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and the reason we invited him here to talk with us today, welcome David Nassau. Delighted to be here. Well, David, those are some credentials that you bring to this. I was fascinated by the introduction in which you talked about how you came to write this book. Perhaps we could start there. Sure. Delighted. I knew through Arthur Schlesinger, who was my colleague at the Graduate Center, I met Gene Kennedy Smith and briefly, briefly, briefly Senator Edward Kennedy. At some point... Ambassador Smith came up to me at a party or reception and said, David, we want you to write our father's biography. I said, I'm flattered, you know, sounds like a great project, but I'm busy. I can't do anything right now. She said, and this is my introduction to the Kennedys who do not take no for an answer. She mm. said, well, when can we talk? I said, maybe six months, six months to the day. There was a message on my answering machine that sounded very much like a Kennedy impersonator. Um, <laughs> but I listened to it three times, and it was Senator Kennedy. He said, come to Washington. Let's talk about the project. I arrived, was ushered into his private office where with his two dogs, his yeah, the, the, the hypoallergenic Portuguese water dogs, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a wonderful lunch, and I said over and over again, you do not want me to write this book. I'm a crazy researcher. I'm a historian. I'm going to find material that the family's not going to want to see in print. And Senator Kennedy, to his credit, said over and over again, all the dirt is out there. Any reasonable, well-researched biography is going to set the record straight no matter what you find. He said, what do you want? I said, I want total access, and I want you and the rest of the family and your lawyers and your agents and everybody else to understand that you will see this book when it's between hard covers and not before. He said, fine. It then took a year and a half of negotiation to get exactly what I wanted. How long did it take to write the whole thing? It's huge. It took too long. It took about six years, oh. a little longer maybe. I always tell myself that I'm going to get more efficient at doing this, but 
can never quite get it done before five, six, seven years. Well, David Nassau, the interesting thing is that I've talked to people who have engaged in these kinds of projects and have done far more than me in my sort of biography of Mario Cuomo, but there's some some postpartum depression that comes in after you, after the project leaves your hands. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You miss him. Well, I you know, I miss him and I also live in fear and dread, you know, that I've made a mistake. Oh, yeah, I've yeah, gotten yeah. a date wrong or a spelling wrong. So you know, it's not easy. I stay out of bookstores because I don't want to see a book that I should have read. But, you know, I, I'm settling down now. Well, the City University uh, Graduate Center, of course, is one of the most prestigious in the country in the world. Thank how you. Do you. How do you balance all that teaching responsibility with writing this kind of incredible project? You know, I tell my students, I now teach only PhD students. Sure. So most of my work with them starts in the afternoon because they've got their own teaching. They're all teaching assistants. They've got their own teaching they do. And my students have been very good. You know, I leave my door open and they don't bother me. I get into the office at, you know, 8 o'clock every morning. I'm there till 6. When I teach, I'm there a little later. And the key is to write every day. Sure. What time do you start? I start, you know, by 8.30 in the morning, I think. Well, you're a piker. I, I started three. No. So, yeah. That's when I wrote, I wrote the dissertation. That's when I wrote the book. I mean, it seems to me that that's the best time. Nobody ever bothers you, and you can go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. Three. That's frightening. <laughs> Let's go on. So I don't know how to put this gently, but there is, in American mythology, we love the Kennedy boys— I'm not sure it's always appropriate, but we do. And, you know, people will tell you, Lyndon Johnson will tell you, he'd walk into a house in West Virginia and see a picture of Jesus on the wall, and the next wall is John Kennedy. But Joseph Kennedy, on the other hand, has always had a reputation which is, he's a bastard. Yeah. Much of that reputation is well-deserved, but not all of it. You know, when you, when you write a biography of a man who everybody thinks he or she knows, but nobody really does. Sure, right. Your, your job is clearing away the underbrush and getting down to the essence, to the truth. I checked out every rumor, every myth. You know, as a historian, I'm sure you know this, um, you know, we read footnotes. I don't care much what's on the page unless I've checked it out and I see where it comes from. Right. And as I did my research, I discovered all sorts of things. I discovered that Kennedy was indeed a serial womanizer. Just I like his son. Just like his son, right. Sons, I should say. I discovered that he was a fierce isolationist. He right. wanted nothing right. to do with World War II. He would not have minded if Great Britain had gone down to defeat or had to make a deal with Mussolini and Hitler so long as the United States didn't get involved in the war. To the point that some people, David Nassau, call him a fascist himself. Is that undeserved? That's undeserved. That's undeserved. One can be an isolationist and not be a Nazi. He understood full well what Nazism and fascism meant, and he understood that there would have been no place for him and his children in a Nazi or fascist regime. There would have been no way to make the millions and millions and millions of dollars he made in any other system but the capitalist system. So he was absolutely not, not a Nazi or not a fascist, but 
he knew that these men in these systems were the devil. He also knew that they were too strong, he thought, to go up against. He listened when Lindbergh talked. Mm -hmm. He listened very carefully, and he was convinced that the Nazis were were invincible. And we should we should mention t- to our audience that Lindbergh, of course, was a fierce opponent of involvement, and not a little of an anti-Semite. Right, you're being kind. Lindbergh was an outright anti-Semite. You read his speeches and his letters and his magazine articles, and the man was an anti-Semite. Kennedy is a different creature. Kennedy makes many pronouncements that are frighteningly anti-Semitic. He blames the Jews for trying to get the United States into World War II. He, at some point, begins to mouth all the anti-Semitic nonsense about, you know, that the Jews own the media and the Jews can't be trusted and the Jews aren't real patriots. He should have known better because the same things would be said about his son as a Catholic. When his son ran for president in 1960, everybody said about his son that you couldn't have a Catholic as president because Catholics weren't real American patriots. So Kennedy was an anti-Semite, but not in the essential way that Lindbergh was or that any number of other Americans and many housed in the State Department were. When he went to England as a great reward for Roosevelt's support and all, you write, I believe you write, that he was afraid to bring him back, uh, Roosevelt, even though he he knew he should be fired because he didn't want to lose the Irish Catholic vote. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. Kennedy and Roosevelt were two of the smartest manipulators, political operatives, you know, this country has ever seen. Without question. And Roosevelt was smarter. Roosevelt was probably the only man who was smarter in that way than Joseph P. Kennedy, the patriarch. But Roosevelt understood, as he came closer and closer to 1940, that if he was going to run for office again, he needed Kennedy's support. He had lost Al Smith. He had lost James Farley. Kennedy was the most important Irish Catholic and probably the best known in the country, number one. And Kennedy was known as a businessman with Wall Street connections. So Kennedy was a bridge to two constituencies that Roosevelt believed he needed. The last thing Roosevelt wanted was for Kennedy to come home and to tell the American people, I've been a Democrat all my life, but I'm voting for Wendell Wilkie and you should too. Mm -hmm. Let me just go a little astray here and ask you this. Was Joseph P. Kennedy a crook? No, no. Joseph P. Kennedy knew the law. He knew what was legal and what was illegal. And he skirted as close as he possibly could to that boundary. He went right up to the edge of illegality, but didn't cross it. And he didn't cross it because he wanted his sons and his daughters to occupy the inner sanctum of the American establishment. He hadn't gotten there. He hadn't gotten there because he was an Irish Catholic kid from East Boston the son of a ward politician. He wanted his kids to make the journey to Washington, the journey to the inside. And he knew that he was going to be watched. 
as an outsider Irish Catholic, and he made very certain he didn't step across the line, as close to the line as he possibly could, but not one step over it. So I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I've mentioned very excitedly that I was going to have the privilege of talking to you, David, and everybody said, oh, you know, a bootlegger, he was a bootlegger. Bootlegging was against law, and I take it that you have not found that to be so. You know, I would have loved to have discovered he was a bootlegger because it would have given me, you know, a huge new chapter. And I could have <laughs> talked about the mob and I could have talked about all sorts of extraordinary people. I checked out every rumor, every story. And the closer you look, the less is there. You know, when you look very closely at respectable journalists and respectable writers, in order to make the case that Kennedy was a bootlegger, they give credence to people like a man who claimed he was Al Capone's piano tuner and had overheard while he was tuning the piano a conversation between Kennedy and Capone. You have to give credence to Murray the Camel Humphrey's ex-wife who said Murray the Camel was a Chicago operative who said that she heard Murray the Camel talking to Kennedy. You have to give credence to all sorts of ex-cons who never spoke or who rarely spoke the truth, who said, oh, yeah, I knew Joe Kennedy. We used to unload booze, you know, at Nantucket or in the Gulf Coast or in Detroit when it was shipped across from Canada. I checked out every story. The one that came closest, I thought, to having credence was the story about a Joseph Kennedy Limited of Vancouver, Canada. The Canadians during Prohibition didn't care a whit whether Canadians shipped booze into the United States as long as the Canadians paid an excise tax. And a Joseph Kennedy of Vancouver didn't pay the excise tax, was brought into court. Every writer who wants to, you know, say that Kennedy was a bootlegger uses this example. Well, I checked out Joseph Kennedy Limited, and it was owned by a man named David Joseph Kennedy, who was a lifelong resident of Vancouver. Nothing to do with Joseph P. Kennedy of Boston or East Boston. So, you know, the rumors collapsed. And I'll tell you something else that I found very interesting. In 1960, when Jack Kennedy runs against Nixon, the Nixon people have an extraordinary dirty research team where they look for dirt. And they've got some of the brightest young lawyers and researchers in the country working to find as much dirt as they can about Joseph P. Kennedy. And they bring up all the stories about his isolationism and his stock swindling, and they claim that he was a Nazi and an anti-Semite. There is never a word about bootlegging in 1960. Kennedy was cleared by the FBI for any number of government appointments. Never a word in his FBI files about bootlegging. This all comes up after his son's assassination. And it's brought up by researchers who want to tie the assassination to the mob and in order to do so, create a narrative that goes back to the father and the mob. I'm told, David Nassau, that one of the things that was clear is that the children of Joseph P. Kennedy, including 
the president, the attorney general, and others really wanted to reclaim his reputation. They wanted him to appear better than history has treated him. Is that so? Yes and no. You know, the family makes a deal, and Joseph P. Kennedy and his wife are very much part of that deal. When Jack runs for the House of Representatives in 1946, Joe retreats to the background, but he can't stay in the background. He continues to make speeches until 1952. When Jack runs for the Senate in 1952 and begins his push for the nomination, which he's going to get in 1960, the family decides no more Joe Kennedy. And Joe doesn't give any more interviews. He doesn't appear on television. There is only one picture I found from 1946 of Joe in any of his son's campaign literature. Uh, The press trails Joe wherever he is. He refuses to comment. He doesn't appear in 1960 at the convention center. He's not there when his son accepts the nomination. He's a non-person. And he's a non-person because he is so controversial, number one. And number two, Jack Kennedy looks so young that everybody believes a man this young has to get his information, his advice, his positions from his father. You know, he's too young to make up his mind for himself. So the family, in a sense, and Joe agrees, they consign him to this, you know, limbo. And every time he's attacked, they sit down and they say, we're not going to respond. One of the reasons the family decided that they wanted a biography was that Nobody had defended, nobody in the family had really defended Joseph P. Kennedy during his life and in the decades afterwards. And they understood that if they hired someone who didn't have credentials as a historian, nobody would believe the story. They hoped that because I had credentials as a historian, if they gave me free reign, I could start the rehabilitation, but the rehabilitation would never be total because there was stuff out there that Joe Kennedy had done that nobody was proud of. When Joe Kennedy was just getting started, he went from being, what, an assistant bank something to this. There were these Herculean jumps in his jobs. What was that all about? Was that just because he was good at what he was doing? He had multiple talents. He was absolutely charming. His son, Ted, told me how he used to marvel as a kid, how when his father, the patriarch, walked into a room, no matter who was in that room, the center of attention shifted to Joe Kennedy. He was articulate, he was witty, he was charming, and he was smart. Boy, was he smart. He had a way with numbers. He had a way of looking at a balance sheet. He was a shrewd negotiator. His strategy was never try to get 100% when you're in a negotiation. You know, if you can get 55% and leave the other guy 45%, you know, take it. Never wait till a stock reaches its high. You know, if you've got a good profit, sell. He was also ruthless. He cared only about the bottom line. He cared only about himself and his family, 
And people who had been business partners with him found themselves on the outs with very little money in their accounts because Joe had written the agreements so that he was the winner and his partners were the losers. Gloria Swanson never got over. She thought she was the shrewdest businesswoman in Hollywood. And yet she discovered after they had broken off their affair and their business relationship that everything belonged to Joe, that he was the one who had made the profits and every loss went to her accounts. Tell me about it, Joseph Jr. Was this the worst thing that ever happened to Joe Kennedy? Yeah, yeah. As a father, I can't imagine anything worse sure. happening. You know, Joe Kennedy was, Joseph P. Kennedy, the patriarch, was totally opposed to World War II. Hmm. And yet when his son said, we want to go fight, he supported him. He supported Joe Jr. when he wanted to fly bombers, Air Force bombers. He supported Jack when he wanted to go into a PT boat. He supported Bobby when he wanted to, instead of going to Harvard, go into the Navy Reserve. And in this wonderful letter he wrote to his friend, he said, if the war goes on much longer, I'm going to lock Teddy in the basement because he's going to try to go as well. Joe Jr. took one of the most dangerous, dirty jobs. And the tragedy, the tragedy was that he died after D-Day, after the war, had been won. You know, his, his jet exploded. His, his plane exploded just before it got to the English Channel. He took off from England, was on his way to a bombing raid in Germany, and never got there. <laughs> it was an unspeakable tragedy. Joe Jr. was the oldest son. Joe Jr. was the boy who was going to redeem the family's reputation. Joe Jr. was the kid who was going to go into politics and become president. And he was incinerated before his 30th birthday. You have a picture in the book, which is really magnificent, of you'd have to see it for everybody who's listening, in which Joe Jr. and Joe Sr. are looking at the other three boys who are seated next to them. And they look alike, these two guys. One's an older man, of course, but they're both in blue suits and they both look like the patriarchs. Whereas the other guys are all, you know, Bobby and, and John and Teddy are all sort of outfitted much more informally. And that sort of speaks to your point, doesn't it? Oh, you're, you're so right. You're so perceptive to pick that up. Yeah, Joe Jr. was, you know, his daddy's boy. Joe Jr was not the smartest of all the kids. Interesting. He probably wasn't the most athletic, but he worked hard and he would do anything his father wanted. And you see, one of the things that went on in the family is that nobody thought much of Jack's future. Jack was ill, frail, skinny, he spent his lives in and out of the hospital. He caught every childhood disease that was possible. Joe Jr. was careful, charismatic. Jack was shy, careless. You know, his room was a disaster. He would dress with two mismatching socks. He didn't do his homework. 
He got into trouble at school continually. He tried out for the sports teams, but was so skinny and frail, he, he never quite got there. Nobody thought he was going to live to be 35, much less, you know, be able to run for president. Joe Jr. was, you know, the standard bearer for the Kennedy family. And talk about the transition. The mantle was placed on John by Joseph Sr.? Joseph Sr. was smart enough to know that he had raised kids, his daughters as well as his sons, who were fiercely independent as he was. And Joe Sr., the patriarch, knew that he couldn't say to Jack, okay, you're up, you're next. This is what you've got to do. Jack had to want it. One of the reasons Jack wanted to go into politics was because it would make his father happy. But Jack gravitated to politics because, in a funny way, it was the family business. Jack's grandfather, Honey Fitz, had been mayor of Boston. Jack's other grandfather, on the Kennedy side, had been a local politician and the leader of the East Boston Democratic Party and a state assemblyman and a state senator. So... It made sense that Jack went into politics. It took a while because it took a while for him to build up his strength so that in 1946, he could put his name for it. And when you look at the photographs of this kid in 1946, they're frightening. He's that skinny. He's that frail. Nobody thought he was going to make it through the campaign. And he would come home at night and literally be helped into the door and lie down in the bath for an hour to soothe his back so that he could start all over again the next day. Help me with this. Now, Honey Fitz was, of course, Rose's father, right? Right. Okay. And Honey Fitz, the ex-mayor, did not like Joseph P. that much. Right. And the feeling was mutual. Right. The patriarch, Joseph P. Kennedy, thought that Honey Fitz was a clown. Got to remember that Kennedy is not you know, he's not ashamed. He's proud to be an Irishman, but he doesn't want to be a stage Irishman. He doesn't want to be a joke. And he thought that men like Mayor Curley, James Curley, and Honey Fitz would joke. You know, they would appear on a campaign stage and they would tell jokes and they would smirk and they would dance and they would sing and they would make outrageous claims. And that embarrassed Joseph P. Kennedy. He wanted nothing to do with this clown of a man who, although he was mayor, had been caught in any number of scandals, sexual scandals, financial scandals, you name it. So he didn't want anything to do with Honey Fitz. His kids loved Honey Fitz. One of the things I enjoyed most about my meetings with Senator Kennedy was his imitations of his grandfather. Ted Kennedy was a remarkable mimic. And he would go through, you know, the pantheon of Boston politicians and imitate each of them. And when he imitated his grandfather, he did it with a big, broad smile on his face. He loved the man. His father did not. So when you are in the middle of this book, is there anything that struck you as, boy, you know, I, I wish I had known this going in? Yeah, you know, when I, when I went into the book... I hoped and thought that all the stories about the anti-Semitism were not going to be true. Senator Kennedy, when we met in the beginning, he looked at me and he said, my father was not an anti-Semite. I, I know my father. Now, David, let me, inter that... let me interrupt and ask you, are you Jewish? 
Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Okay. That's, that sort of sets the stage. So there's a certain personalness about all of this to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I take it personally. But more than that, I didn't want this man who was so very smart to fall victim to these horrid prejudices. And I believe that because Joseph P. Kennedy, the patriarch, was Irish Catholic and knew about prejudice— that that would sort of steal him against, hmm. you know, this anti-Semitic nonsense. And it, di- and it didn't. And that upset me terribly as I went through. You know, again, I, I want to make it clear that he's not an anti-Semite like Lindbergh was an anti-Semite. And I want to make it clear that in the context of the time, to be an anti-Semite in Washington, D.C. was to be in the, you know, in the majority. When you looked at the Roosevelt State Department, I mean— it's frightening, frightening. They wouldn't go across the street, many of them, to save a Jewish life. So Kennedy was not out of the ordinary in that way, but I hoped he would have been. So Joe and Jackie, talk to us about that. How did that go? It's a wonderful relationship. You know, Jackie was one of the only ones in the family who understood this man and loved him. A year into the, his son's presidency, Joe Kennedy has this horrific stroke. He loses all power of communication, all power of using language. He goes from being this handsome older man to being a crippled, deformed monster because of the stroke. It disfigures his body and his face. And he loses the ability to use one of his arms. It just curls up and his hand becomes a claw. The family would always cover up that claw-like hand and that unusable arm with a blanket, or they would arrange him in such a way that he wouldn't see it and people wouldn't see it. Jackie was the only one, when she came in, she would smile at him, say hello, he'd smile back, and she'd hold his hand, and she'd hold that claw-like hand as if to say, I've seen the worst, and I love you anyway. They respected one another. They loved one another. It was a remarkable relationship. Did he know, did Papa know that son was a philanderer? Absolutely. Absolutely. He knew that his son behaved as he did. And he expected Jackie to look the other way as Rose Kennedy Mm. had looked the other way. The family ethic was that you don't embarrass your wife. Mm. You... Do whatever you want to do, but you do it behind closed doors. And you allow her to make up fictions. And as long as Jack didn't embarrass Jackie by appearing in her presence, you know, or by letting her know that he was off with a mistress, that was, for Joseph P. Kennedy, acceptable. That's what husbands did. You provided for your family, and you didn't embarrass your wife. Well, but people in Hollywood obviously knew something about Swanson and the others, didn't they? Right, but Rose was back in on the other side of the—and people in Hollywood protected Joe. And Joe continued to insist all his life to Rose that theirs was a business relationship. As a matter of fact, when Rose writes her autobiography— She has a long passage about my friend Gloria Swanson and how they traveled together, she and Joe and Gloria, and how Gloria had a business relationship and how Gloria was a wonderful woman. 
when Gloria Swanson read Rose's biography, she was so infuriated by Rose's denial of this relationship that she wrote her own autobiography in which she spent a considerable period of time talking about her love affair with Joseph P. Kennedy. What'd she say? She said, (laughs) (laughs) you know, one of the things about being a crazy researcher is that I went, you know, and I invite my readers to look in my book, I went to Austin, Texas. Everybody goes to Austin, Texas to look at the LBJ Library. I went to Austin, Texas to do research in the LBJ Library and the Gloria Swanson papers that are at the Ransom Center on the campus of the University of Texas. And there I discovered all the handwritten notes that Gloria had made for her ghostwriters. Gloria didn't write her autobiography, but she wrote all these notes that nobody had looked upon before. I mean, and these notes are just unbelievable. Gloria said in the beginning, I couldn't understand how this married man who was a Catholic could live with himself. Where was his guilt? I was guilty. Gloria was married also at the time. I was guilty. I was ashamed. Why wasn't Joe? And then she said, and then I understood it was because of confession. Confession was like washing his hands. He would start all over again. He'd be cleaned up. This is what, you know, Gloria wrote about her love affair with the man. And she was furious because he abandoned her. He walked away. And she thought, you know, stole his money. She was amazed when he built her this glorious bungalow at the studio, a bigger bungalow than Hearst had built for Marion Davies. Mm. And she thought to herself, oh, God, Joe loves me that he could have done this. Later, after they break up, she discovered that it was her money, not Joe's money, that went to pay for this bungalow. Well, I hate to get to the nitty-gritty, but did she say anything about his prowess as a physical lover? No, no. There are all sorts of, you know, rumors out there that she had said something, but no, not at all. You know, one of the things that really struck me about your book, and by the way, I should tell everybody the name of the book, not that you can't look at the New York Times bestseller list and see it, is The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. And our guest today is David Nassau, doing a terrific job, by the way. And I guess one of the things that struck me, and I'm sort of going helter-skelter here, is his ability, which people really don't realize, to have anticipated the crash of the stock market, for which he is called the bear. Could you explain all of that to us? Yeah, well, you know, he he was a market manipulator. One of the reasons why people think he was a bootlegger is that nobody could understand where these millions and millions and millions of dollars came from. I was given access to his financial records that nobody had ever seen and his stock market transactions. You know, I, I saw his brokerage sheets. And I saw how he made this money. He made this money by insider trading, which was legal at the time, by selling short, which was legal at the time. What that meant was he would spread rumors or allow rumors to be spread, knocking down the price of a stock. Yeah, they put guys in would, jail for that now, right? But, but well, then it was legal. You, know, you know what is extraordinary about this story? I was a lucky man to find this subject and then to get all this material is that in 1934, Roosevelt names him to be the first commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Everybody tells Roosevelt, you're an idiot. How could you possibly name a stock manipulator to be in charge of the stock market? Roosevelt says, I know what I'm doing, and he did. 
what Kennedy did was Kennedy outlawed every one of the tricks that he had used to make his millions. It's Kennedy who outlaws insider trading. It's Kennedy who outlaws selling short that he engaged in. When Kennedy leaves the Securities and Exchange Commission after 18 months there, he has transformed trading to the extent that he has to retire from the stock market. He goes into real estate from 1936 on because he knows that he can't play his tricks anymore because he's outlawed him. So his fortune is enhanced many times because, as you say, he sold short and he got out while the getting was good. He knew that the stock market was a swindle. He knew how easy it was to manipulate prices and make millions because he had done it. He had done it with any number of Hollywood studio stocks. He had done it with GE and RCA and, you know, you name it. He knew how easy it was. He knew that the stock market was overpriced, and he got out before the Depression. He and Bernard Baruch were two of the only ones who got out early. And then when the market crashed and Herbert mm. Hoover said, don't worry, Americans, the market's going to come back, and Americans continued to put money into the market before it crashed a second time, Kennedy knew it was going down some more, and he made millions more by selling short. So whether a stock went up or down, whether the market went up or down, Kennedy knew how to make money and made it in fistfuls. He had dozens of accounts with dozens of different brokers in dozens of different names, and he made money in all of them. And then when he made that money, he knew how to save it by creating tax-exempt or tax-free or tax-sheltered accounts for his children. And he took the money out of his own accounts and sheltered it in trust funds for his kids. David Nassau, I guess I, I want to go back to Roosevelt for a little while. That is one of the most interesting things about the book, and it's also one of the most interesting things about Kennedy. You know, here is this wily Roosevelt, who's probably, as you suggest, smarter, even smarter than Kennedy, who outplayed him. And do you think there was personal enmity there, or do you think that it was, you know, just doing business? Boy, that's a great question. Roosevelt liked Kennedy a lot. He liked Kennedy because Kennedy was a lot of fun to be around. Kennedy knew how to, you know, entertain his friends. Kennedy would fly in, you know, shellfish, fresh lobsters and clams and oysters from Boston or from Florida for Roosevelt. Roosevelt had an awful lot of fun with Kennedy. I'm sure they told, you know, dirty jokes. They made each other laugh. They liked each other, but they never trusted each other. Never, 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 never. And... Kennedy knew that Roosevelt was out for himself to get himself elected and reelected. And Roosevelt knew that Kennedy had ambitions, if not for himself, then for his family and, and his children. And in the end, it's Roosevelt who, who plays the game the best. Roosevelt is frighteningly embarrassed by Kennedy's antics while he's ambassador to Great Britain. But he, he lets it ride because he knows that in the end, Kennedy is going to embarrass himself. You know, people are going to excuse Roosevelt, and it's Kennedy who's going to suffer from these horrid remarks he makes about the British being unable to defeat the Nazis and the British going down to defeat. 
Kennedy shrewdly understands that the way to Eleanor Roosevelt's heart is through her children. And one of the things Kennedy does is he befriends all the Roosevelt children, and he helps them out in business ventures, in personal ventures. He gets jobs for the in-laws. He gets jobs for the children. And that endears him to Eleanor, and that endears him to Franklin as well. Hmm. He had, of course, Joseph and Rose had one daughter with developmental problems, and they did a lobotomy on her. I mean, did he see this as having been a mistake? Because, you know, there are those who think it was. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the extraordinary stories I tell in my book, because, again, I found all sorts of information and materials and documents and letters and medical reports that nobody else had had ever seen. They loved Rosemary. Rosemary was their oldest daughter. They adored this child, and they knew from the time she was six months old that she was what they called slow. As long as she lived in the family and with the family, her brothers and sisters took care of her. Jack and Joe took her to dances at the country club, and the other children played tennis with her, took her out swimming. It was when she became a grown woman and all the children were out of the house that Rosemary was, was left alone. And she got angry. She was smart enough to know. She had the intelligence of a you know, five, six-year-old, eight-year-old maybe. She was smart enough to know that something was happening, that she was being left alone, that she couldn't do the things her brothers were doing. She got angry. She refused to be confined. She started to run away from her convent schools. Joe Kennedy did all the research he could, as he always did for the kids. He took care of the medical problems. Rose did not. And he discovered that there was this miracle operation that was being pioneered by the head of neurology at Johns Hopkins, who worked with a Yale-trained neurosurgeon, and they were doing lobotomies. And he agreed to have his daughter lobotomized. He did not tell Rose or consult with Rose. And people have blamed him right and left for doing this, saying it was heartless. But as a historian, I, I did my research. And I discovered at the time that all of the medical research said that women, mothers, should be left out of the decision-making for their retarded children because mothers were too sentimental, too emotional, you couldn't trust them, that the father had to make the decision by himself. Joe Kennedy made the decision. The lobotomy was performed, and it was a disaster. It went wrong. His daughter came out of the operating room with the intelligence of a baby, she couldn't speak, she couldn't walk, she couldn't communicate in any way. After years of rehabilitation, she got to the point where she could walk and she could smile, but she never spoke. Kennedy looked after her. He visited her at the various hospitals. And then he found a place for her in Jefferson, Wisconsin, in a convent school, and convinced himself that it was better if Rosemary never saw the family again that seeing the family would only bring back bad memories, bad screen memories. And he convinced himself that it was better for the family if they never saw Rosemary again. 
I don't understand that. I understand him having his daughter lobotomized. I don't understand him never seeing his daughter for the last 15 years of his life. After his stroke, Rose and Eunice especially went to visit Rosemary, but they never told their father they were doing so because their father wanted Rosemary cut off entirely from the rest of the family. The name of the book is The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life in Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. It's by David Nassau, who is an award-winning, fabulous historian and professor at the CUNY Graduate Center. David, in the end, we suspect, and you have sort of confirmed, that you know Teddy came to see you with his sister in order to basically start a process of, if not rehabilitation, of understanding of Joseph P. Kennedy. But his life after he had to come back in disgrace from England was a search for rehabilitation, yes? Yes, but it was a search for rehabilitation through his children. He began to understand that he was never going to allow himself to be rehabilitated because he was a loudmouth. He had his own opinions. He thought he was the smartest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the country. So he was against, he was remained an isolationist. He was against the Cold War. He was against the war in Korea. He was against the Marshall Plan. He was against NATO. And he knew that the more he spoke out, the less possible it would be that his children would ever get anywhere. So he shut up. And the father would be rehabilitated through the success of his children. But there had to be some feeling. I mean, we watched what happened to Lindbergh, a guy who was at the apex, ends up never being allowed off the floor. It seems to me that it, it can't just be dismissed as everything for the children and nothing for me. No. He led a great life. I mean, I'm not going to say he didn't. And he served President Truman and President Eisenhower in advisory positions. And, you know, he had friends in high places. He had friends in every European capital and the Vatican and Washington. But he understood that, how can I put this, that he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And that if he ever gave a speech, Mm. he was not going to disguise his true feelings. And those true feelings were so in the minority as an isolationist during the Cold War that it was either he becomes a private citizen or he remains a public spokesperson and makes it difficult for his children. Yes, but how pragmatic was he? So, so in other words, if Jack comes to him, which I suspect must have happened, and says, Pop, what do you think of this? Could he divorce you know, his feelings and say, okay, but pragmatically in terms of where you are politically, you have to go with NATO or you have to go with this or that? Boy, that's another great question. No, he didn't do it because he knew he had raised his sons to be smarter than he was. Joe Kennedy was never able to disguise his opinions. He would argue and he would rail with Jack and he would say, NATO is terrible, you should vote against the Marshall Plan. But he, he did it knowing his son was going to go as far in his father's direction as he possibly could without alienating his voter base. So he continued. I mean, Joe once said, he said, you know, the two people I love the most in the world or the two politicians I love the most in the world 
William Douglas, the Supreme mm. Court justice, and my son Jack, I disagree with on everything. He said, there's either something wrong with them or there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and his children listened. His children listened. And then they made up their own minds. Kennedy was absolutely opposed to Jack trying to get the vice presidential nomination in 1956. He said, Stevenson's a loser. And he said, if Stevenson loses in 1956, they're going to blame the Catholic kid who was his vice president. Don't do it, Jack. Jack and Bobby decided they wanted to run for the vice presidential nomination. Their father screamed at him. And then when he was finished screaming, said, whatever I can do to help out, let me know. You know, I'll come back from my vacation in the south of France if I can be of help to you. And he doesn't get it, right? No, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. And it was the best thing that ever happened. And his father was right. Yeah, sure. So the Vatican, I want to talk to you about the Vatican being Catholic. He gets named to the Vatican. How important was that relationship with going and being with the Pope and the rest of it? You know, it was the greatest honor for this man to serve as a liaison, unofficial liaison between Washington and and the Vatican for many years. And the tragedy, I think one of the great tragedies in his life was when in 1960, it became clear that the Catholic Church did not support his son's campaign for the presidency. Joe Kennedy could not believe it. Cardinal Spellman, who was the leader of the church, was in America, a yeah. Nixon supporter. And that was, you know, unfathomable for Kennedy. Up until 1960, the large bulk of his philanthropic efforts had gone to church institutions. After 1960, it did not. If one of the strange things, if you look at the inauguration very carefully, Cardinal Spellman is not invited. He's the leader of the American church. He's not invited to the inauguration. Cardinal Cushing gives the prayer. Yeah, of Boston. Joseph P. Kennedy is invited to meet Pope John, but is so upset with what the Vatican has done and what the church has done in opposing his son's campaign that he turns down the invitation. Well, wasn't it also true? I had an aunt who used to walk around and say, you know, if Kennedy is elected, then the Pope is going to be calling the shots. Of course, that didn't happen to be true, but also wasn't there an official aunt, I may say. But there was also a sense in the country that if there was too much Catholicism in the inauguration or the other thing, this would be confirmatory. Yeah, no, that's true. But nonetheless, I mean, Kennedy was not going to be inaugurated without a prayer that's true. from, you know, Archbishop. But, you know, one of the legacies of the Kennedy administration, and and we should think about it, is that in Kennedy's thousand days Mm. as president, neither his supporters nor his detractors ever had reason to believe that he was acting as a Catholic first and as an American second. I want to ask you something real fast. Jack and Bobby were both assassinated, of course. And the question becomes, was the father worried about the safety of his children? Yes, he was worried, but he would do nothing. He knew his kids were headstrong. He knew to be a Kennedy was to take risks. He tried to rein them in, but knew that that was not going to be possible. 
The name of the book is The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy by David Nassau. It is a terrific read. You won't put it down when you start it. And all I can say is, David Nassau, Professor, thank you so much for giving us all this wonderful time. You are, you are really compelling, and we, we thank you for it. My pleasure. Thank you. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.